we, we sing about living water and maybe we've been at church for a while and we, we forget how refreshing that living water is. Uh, in the second service, I was introduced to a gentleman, uh, an older gentleman, uh, probably in his uh, 60s, early 70s, and he pulled me aside. I know, okay. And he pulled me aside. I'm trying to tell a serious story here, people. And he, he pulled me aside and he hugged me. And he said, for 25 years, my wife has prodded me, and then he said, nagged me to come to church. And last Sunday was the first time I'd been in church in 25 years, and my life will never be the same again. Amen. And so we get, we get into this habit of thinking, man, you know, God's not changing lives. God's not moving. He is. And we just need to create opportunities for God to uh, be able to be made great and, and made known to the world around him. And so I'm so thankful to have you with us this morning. And my prayer is that today you will see the greatness of God and give him the glory that's due his name. Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, whether on your phone or a physical copy. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to sit there for our entire time as we continue in our series that we've entitled Kingdoms, Chaos, and the Sovereignty of God. And if there was a title that I could use, it would be that for Daniel 5, because we got kingdoms, we got chaos, and we've got the sovereignty of God being played out in one evening at one party that's going to take place. Today we're going to explore the details of an epic party that took place about 600 years before Jesus Christ would enter the world in Bethlehem, and yet we see his hands, no pun intended, at work in a mighty way in this party. And it's kind of appropriate that today of all days we would talk about parties. 116 million Americans today are going to gather in parties for the Super Bowl. And maybe you're gathering in an event like that where there's going to be food and festivities and, and football. And you're going to enjoy uh, all that transpires. Not only what goes on in the field, but whatever Taylor Swift's doing in the... In the uh, uh, Luxury boxes rooting on her, her boyfriend. Uh, boy, football has changed, hasn't it? <laughs> but parties are big, and Americans know how to throw parties, how to throw festivals, how to throw gatherings. In fact, some of the most well-known are, are events that, that uh, not only took place in real time, of course, and impacted those who attended, but they went on uh, for many, many years to come. For example, uh, John F. Kennedy was thrown a birthday party about a year and a half before he was assassinated. It took place in Madison Square Garden. 15,000 people attended. And if you were to ask most people, they don't remember if there was food served or what drinks were served or what speeches were made. What they remember is the song being sung, Happy Birthday by Marilyn Monroe, and the great drama that came as a result of her saying, Happy Birthday, Mr. President, in a very sultry and seductive way. Another party that was big in American history was uh, when a newly inaugurated president, Andrew Jackson, who was labeled the people's president, at the end of his inauguration, in essence said, come one, come all, let's throw a party, and invited people to his new house, the White House. 25,000 people attended the party. They trashed uh, the White House with mud and debris. Uh, many of the president's uh, uh, underlings and officials had to 
take down paintings to make sure people didn't take stuff, put away the fine china so that it would not be ruined. But he wanted the Americans to know that this was in fact the people's house and that any and all should be invited in. What a party he threw. And then of course, who can forget the party that took place on a farm in central New York in 1969? 400,000 people descended upon this incredible uh, field to experience what we called Woodstock. Now, it's a bit of a misnomer because Woodstock's quite a distance away from the farm that took place there, but no doubt it was the party uh, of all parties. Uh, the best and, and brightest musicians came and played, and of course, the hippies with all of their free love and pursuit of peace had a grand old time for three days out in the, uh, the farmland. But of all the parties that have ever been thrown, there's one that stands above all others. 5.6 million people about seven years ago would flood uh, the Chicago uh, area to celebrate uh, the world championship of the Chicago Cubs, right? Yeah, 5.6 million. It is the second largest gathering in human history, right? This is a party of all parties, a festival of all festivals. And I know even some of you were there and experienced it. Now I know, and I, I get your emails, I get your phone calls. We hate hearing about the Cubs. We got a lot of Sox fans out there. We don't get a lot of love. And, and I know a couple decades ago, you guys won a championship as well. It's really far back. And so what I did was I, I knew you would want to be reminded of it. And I couldn't find any partying, but I found the parade, the World Series parade for the White Sox. And I thought you would enjoy this. So, so with that, let's open up God's word and learn from God. I've already offended half my audience. There's not that many White Sox fans. But I want to talk about a part. <laughs> Come on down to the living water, Rob. You'll be okay. Oh. I want to talk about a party this morning, a party that happened, like I said, 600 years before Jesus would make his earthly ministry here. And, and I want you to see in this party, uh, the party isn't known. The party isn't known for what food was served. The party, you know, and it was a big party, a thousand people. Some believe it was even more because the text says a thousand lords were invited to this party. There was drinking at the party. A lot of parties have drinking. But what made this party so significant was that God showed up in the party. God showed up. And God had a message for all the party goers, including the king, the most important, the most influential individual in the entire place. And what we hear from God is a message that all of us need to hear and understand. Whether we are close to God or far from him this morning, there's a message in this party. And this is what Daniel tells us about that event. King Belshazzar, and we'll talk about who he is in a moment, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, it's really his grandfather, we'll talk about that in a moment as well, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, 
and his concubines might drink from them. Then he brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords and wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the finger of God, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall on the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. That's important. We'll talk about that as well. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. Then the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me this interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. That's important as well. We'll talk about that. Then all the king's men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, we'll talk about her, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in the kingdom in whom the spirit of the is is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made chief of the magicians, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, uh, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Let's stop there. So there's a lot of places in this story that we need to fill in. We need to understand because there's been some critical uh, response to this text and a couple of reasons why that we'll get to. Number one, we need to understand that Daniel now is about 60 to 70 years of age. He is, yes, I will say it, an older man, okay? And he has been through the ups and downs of living as an exile in a kingdom that is not his own. He's had to figure out how to love God and be faithful to his God amidst being a part of pagan kingdoms. But what we have here is a bit of trouble. So first of all, we need to understand that we have between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, that white space, if you want to write down, about 23 years 23 years. Now, where do we get that? From human history. We know from secular history that the Babylonian kings, who they were and when they served and how long they served. Multiple historians give us clear dates of when this happened. We can pinpoint that this uh, party took place on a certain date in 539 BC. We know that. We know that because human history helps us to define that moment. Now, where it gets a little cloudy, what the unbelieving world would say is, well, who's Belshazzar? We don't have any king of, of Babylon named Belshazzar, so, so who is it? Well, the text tells us that Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that's not the case, and there's good reason. 
to be called that in ancient Aramaic, which this is being written in, there was no word for grandfather. It was to speak of your fathers. It, it, this was also seen in the, in the ancient Hebrew writing when it would say that Jacob wanted to be buried with his fathers, okay? It didn't say his dad and his grandpa and his great-grandpa. That's terminology we use. But usually if you were a descendant, that was your father. Well, we know from human history that there uh, was no mention of this guy named Belshazzar. And the critical, liberal uh, theologians of our day would say, well, this is why you can't believe the Bible to be true events. This is a story, and this is where Daniel messes up because he creates a name where there is no uh, name in human history. This is where the Bible diverts from secular history. Well, that was the case until about 1850s. In 1850s, there was an archaeological dig around the area of Babylon, and they unearthed what has come to be known as the Cylinder of Nabonidus. The Cylinder of Nabonidus. It is this this piece of tapestry that had Babylonian writings on it. Now remember, it's not hard to read Babylonian because it's Aramaic. Aramaic is still a modern language. And, and the writings they were able to decipher, well, within, within and on this uh, artifact was that Nabonidus, who was the uh, son of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, i got to get my name straight here, the son of Nebuchadnezzar had a son who never served as king, but served as a de facto king while Nabonidus was off fighting a war. And so what we've got here, and he writes down the name on this cylinder of Nabonidus, Belshazzar. And so here we have Belshazzar's name written in antiquity, and it confirms that what we're reading is truly historic events. Now, the queen is not uh, Belshazzar's uh, wife, it's his mother. And what we're going to have happen is, is this king who's ruling leading for his father in his stead is going to have God speak through a hand and a finger by writing on the wall. And we're going to learn a little bit more about this. To do so, I want to look at three points this morning. Two are points of observation. That is, I want to just tell you what it says. And then the third one, I want to apply what we see in the text to our lives today. The first point I want you to see is that this party reminds us of our futility man's futility. Chapter 5 may be the best place for us to see how futile and small we as human beings really are. And we see this in the text in a couple ways. First of all, we see it in the whole occasion of the party. The whole occasion of the party is that they are throwing a party all the while knowing that the Medo-Persian Empire army is surrounding their city. Now why in the world would a king throw a party knowing there's enemies at his gate? And here's why. Because Babylon was known to be one of the most defensive and defended cities in all of the ancient world. 
Uh, a picture like this of Babylon, we would see uh, of a depiction of what it would have looked like in around 550 uh, BC and then what it is today. That's a real picture at the bottom in modern day Iraq of what is the capital city of Babylon and what is left now 2,500 years later. Now, the Bible tells us that it was a walled city. History tells us that there was a moat that surrounded the city. That moat was 50 feet deep with water that was fed from the Euphrates River. So an army had to go through a river and then once getting to uh, the other side of the river, they stood in front of 90 foot walls. So think about, you've got to cross a channel that's 50 feet deep with a boat or something, then you've got to have ladders that are at least 90 feet tall to get your army across. Well, we're going to learn the Medes and Persians are way smarter than the Babylonians because they dam up the river and then they make their way underneath the walls and they're able to conquer the Babylonians in one fell swoop. Here is the futility. We think we're secure. We think we've got everything figured out, and we don't. This guy throws a party with all kinds of drinking and all kinds of carousing. This is an epic, sinful party. One guy said it's the 3D kind of party. Drunkenness, debauchery, and defilement. We're told drunkenness. Wine is declared a couple times in this. They're living it up. They're drinking it up. Then we see debauchery. Where's debauchery? Three times in our text, the word concubines is brought in. I can assure you concubines weren't invited to regal affairs. They were brought in for one reason, and I'll leave that to your imagination. This was a highly sexual party. And then it was a defiling party. And that is not only did they defile themselves with immorality, but they took the precious things that they had taken from the temple in Israel that Nebuchadnezzar had put in his temples. See, Nebuchadnezzar had a bit of restraint. He said the things that were built and made for God stayed with the gods. Belshazzar says, no, no, bring them out. And they bring out the, the wonderful things that God had men create to be used as worship and as tools of worship and admiration to the Most High God. Belshazzar brings it out and says, fill it up with wine and, and then use these tools as mechanisms to worship gods made of gold, silver, iron, wood, and clay. And God gets upset with this. God says, I, I'm not a, a fan of using my treasured things to pursue other gods. In fact, in the statement we read, it tells us that the writing on the wall happens opposite of the lampstand. The lampstand is one of the most cherished possessions within Israel's worship in the temple. And Belshazzar says, I don't care what God said these things were for. I will use them however I see fit. And God says, enough is enough. Now I want you to notice in the passage the word immediately. Immediately. We see man's futility that he's throwing a party little knowing that his life is going to be taken from him. We see man's futility in now the presence of God. God shows up. God doesn't have to be invited. God shows up when he wants, how he wants, where he wants. Now, how does he show up? Does he show up with a mighty army? No. Does he show up with storms and winds? No. 
Does he show up with an angelic choir announcing his arrival? No. He shows up with the sign of a human hand. A human hand. A human hand probably no bigger than what you see here on the stage. My hand on the wall and a finger beginning to write on that wall. Notice the futility of the most powerful man in that place. The text says that when the finger and the hand show up, the king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and it says his knees knocked together. Literally, he lost control of his bowels. He made a mess of himself. He's freaking out. And if the king's freaking out, I can assure you, all of the thousand inhabitants in that party are freaking out. Why? Because a hand shows up. Because a hand shows up and writes some words on the screen. The great and mighty of Babylon are shut down and shut up because God shows up with a hand. Nothing more. We think we are so great. We think we are so powerful. We think we are so all-knowing. And when the rubber meets the road, we are frail and finite people. We bring nothing to the table. And our futility is seen when the going gets tough. In fact, at the end of the passage, we'll see the futility of this great king. He's killed that very night. In his kingdom, everything he and his fathers have built is all taken away. Can I just stop here for a moment and ask, are you living in the dream that you're building something? Are you living in a world where you think that you've actually got control of this thing called life? Do you believe that you're smart enough, strong enough, wise enough, able enough to address the issues both known and unknown today and in the future? Do you think you've amassed enough riches to be able to address and answer the troubles that may be coming your way? Notice this very clearly. Daniel chapter five tells the people, including you and I today of the world, if you think you're bringing something, you're not. You're not. My family was watching a documentary about the titans of technology and in no way do I want to dishonor the dead, but I found it quite remarkable. When they spoke about Steve Jobs, the brains behind Apple, the multi-multi-billionaire, the visionary, the dreamer who made such amazing advancements and many of us use his advancements and his dreams and his visions on a daily basis. What could he not invent? What could he not solve? What issues, what, what struggles could he not find ways to bring about solutions? That is until he got the news of cancer. And no amount of riches, no amount of vision, no amount of technology would help that poor man as he struggled with cancer. And you would see it as that cancer ate that we are a frail and finite people. And that our attempts at building kingdoms of our own, amassing kingdoms of our making, are the most foolish thing that we could do. Belshazzar knows that he is a king on borrowed time. The text is going to say that. 
He's a king on borrowed time. He's been warned, but he won't listen. So he brings in the futile of the futile, and that is the magicians, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the enchanters. I wonder when they showed up if the carnival music started to play. And they come in in the clown cars, and they come out, and the king's like, all right, all right, you guys are the best. You're the brightest. These are our valedictorians. They're going to solve the writing on the wall. Now, has it dawned on them what's dawned on us? That every time they've been asked to do something, they have failed at it. How do they keep their job? I want to work in Babylon. You never accomplish anything, and you keep your job. So they come, and they look at the writing on the wall, and none of them are able to make any sense of the interpretation. Verse 9 says, well, the king now is even more greatly alarmed. His color changed, and the lords were perplexed. Can I just tell you something? Without God in our lives, that is where we will end up alarmed and perplexed because this world has way bigger problems than we will ever be able to deal with on our own and here's the thing our creator knew that our creator knew that and so what does he do well he brings the queen in and she speaks words you don't have to be alarmed your color doesn't have to change there's a guy in your kingdom and he served your grandfather And I remember him serving my dad, she says, and he served him well. He had understanding, he had wisdom, and he was made the chief of the enchanters and the magicians. He's able to notice what it says, interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. I'm glad he's on our team. But I want to remind you this morning that Daniel is no different than every, of the, uh, every one of the other enchanters and magicians except one thing. God lives within him. The Spirit of God resides in him. So I don't want you to get this sense that Daniel's bringing something to the table. Daniel would not know what these words are unless God gave him the interpretation of which Daniel says over and over again. So we have man's futility, and now we see God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. That is, God is in control. God is powerful. God is mighty. God is in control of all things. Now, we see that, first of all, before we even get into this text in Daniel 1 through Daniel 4, in the details of life. God's been in control of things. God was in control when the Babylonians came and took over Israel. God was in control when Daniel was taken into exile. God was in control when Daniel said, I'm not going to defile myself in Daniel 1 with the king's food. Give me vegetables and water. God was in control and allowed Daniel to have favor with the the people in, in charge of him and to allow him to thrive. God was in control when he gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream in chapter 2 and Daniel the interpretation of that dream. God was in control when King Nebuchadnezzar built an idol of himself and told every person they needed to bow to it. And God was in control when he saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire that King Nebuchadnezzar threw them into. God was in control when King Nebuchadnezzar starts thinking highly of himself and begins to start worshiping himself. And God's in control when he brings Nebuchadnezzar down and makes him like an animal in Daniel 4. 
and then allows him to repent at the end of the chapter. God has been in control every step of the way. Now, we see God's sovereignty and how he shows up with a finger. He doesn't have to show up in any other way but with a finger. He gives Daniel the ability to interpret dreams and notice God has the sovereign power to judge people. He declares three truths to the king that could be declared to us. He says, you know better, you saw it in your grandfather that your grandfather became proud and God had to take him low and he repented. And he repented and learned, notice verse 21, that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Now notice what he says. And you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And he says, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Could God say that of you this morning? Could God say in his sovereignty, I have declared myself through my word and in the world. I have shown myself powerful. I've shown how I've moved and acted in the lives of others. And you still are hell-bent on building a kingdom of your own, which in the end will show you how futile your life really is. Are you building that kingdom? And are you doing it in direct rebellion to the sovereign control of God? Brothers and sisters, and everyone who is here, please hear me. That a day is coming when the sovereign God will say what he said that very day. Notice what the text says. Daniel comes in, he says, you haven't listened. But here, I'll tell you what the words on the wall mean. He says in verse 25, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered your days and your kingdom and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales or on the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel tells them what it is. And can it be said this morning of us today, your days are numbered. Friends, you need to know, and I need to know, that God has numbered our days. We can say that's fair or unfair. God has numbered our days, and we do not know when that day will be called. But we know it's coming. Every man, woman, and child knows because we've experienced deaths of, of others around us that we know that a time of God's choosing, not our own, that that day will come. And yet the world says, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because they don't want to think about that. But there's a day coming when we will no longer be living and the Bible says that we will stand, that we live and die once and then comes judgment. We will stand in the presence of God. And the, our lives will be put on scales. 
And the Bible tells us what every man, woman, and child scale will say. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We will be found wanting. And the only way we're not found wanting is not the kingdoms we build, not the money we amass, not the good things that we do, but the only way those scales are brought into a, a, a good place is through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And our faith and our trust that that sacrifice was sufficient for all that we need. And for those that rebel against that, and maybe there are some in this place today who are building your kingdom, who are pursuing your own party, and you will stand before the Lord and it will be too late. Your kingdom, all that you've built, will be taken and given to someone else. And the Bible says that if anyone's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, they will be cast into the lake of fire. Sobering words about God's judgment. You see, God reigns supreme. His sovereignty is seen in one other spot, and that's at the very end of the passage. It says that that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede, notice what it says, receive the kingdom. You receive that which has been given to you. God gave the Babylonian kingdom to Darius. He gave it to him because God's the one who gives and takes away. And so today we've seen this juxtaposition of our futility and God's utter sovereignty. And it begs the question, what do we do with it? Write this down. It should do two things before I get to our third point. It should humble us Gosh, we should take some real accounting in our life and ask the question, what am I building? And do I really think it's gonna last? Jesus in his own words says, do not treasure up for yourselves treasures from the earth, things that moth and rust can destroy. But lay up your treasures in heaven. This should humble us and and remind us we're not in charge. But this truth should also give us hope because we're lost. We have nothing to bring to God in heaven, but we don't have to. That's grace. Jesus came that we might have life in all abundance. And here it is. Daniel is told that God is in charge and he has hope. He's not worried about the Babylonians. He's not worried about the Medio Persians. He's not worried about the Greeks or the Romans who will come after. He knows there's one kingdom. He knows there's one boss, and it's God who reigns supreme in heaven. And that gives him hope. Hope to live another day amidst the trials and tribulations that he faced. So we have an opportunity. All this leads to an application of our opportunity. And I want to ask this question because to make the most of the opportunity will depend on how you answer these questions. So question number one, what will it take for you to believe? For Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's grandfather, it took seven periods of time for him to be made like an animal before he threw up the flag of surrender and said, I give up. And he believed But this king doesn't believe. 
There's no mention of him repenting. There's no mention of him giving glory to God. There's no mention of it at all. Which begs the question, what would it have taken him? What more did he need to see? And maybe you're like, well, if I saw a miracle, then maybe I would believe. Well, he got a miracle and he didn't believe. What will it take you, you who are far from God, to believe that God is in control and you're not? That you are not the Savior, you are not the captain of your vessel, but Jesus Christ is. What will it take? More preaching, more singing, more testimony. What will it take for you to believe? Because here's the thing, whether you believe it or not doesn't make it true or not. Jesus Christ reigns supreme and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you will one day bow to that name and bow to that king. And the question is, will you do it while there's mercy and grace to be found? What will it take you to believe? Number two, what's catching your eye? I love this statement in here. When, when Daniel shows up, after he gets accolades from the king's mother, he says, if you make good on this interpretation, I'll give you clothing and I'll give you power. In exile... Those are great things. And I got to wonder, as he looked at the landscape of the party, if he saw every type of pleasure known to man available to him. But Daniel, not in the party, comes in from outside, and he makes known the interpretation. And this is what he says. Keep your stuff. Keep your stuff. Now later in the text, it says he gets it anyway, but it really doesn't matter, and here's why. Because the king is giving away stuff that's gonna be taken away in a couple hours. And could it be said of us as Christ followers that unlike Daniel, the things of this world are catching our eye? The pleasure, the possessions, the power. And what the believer should be saying is keep that for yourself, and here's why. This kingdom is coming to an end. And these things are temporal. And what I'm storing up, what I'm building up, what I'm pursuing is not the treasures of this world, but the treasures of heaven. Not the pleasures of this earth, but the pleasures of heaven. Not the possession of this earth, but the possessions of heaven. What is catching your eye right now? Number three, when asked, are you ready to speak? Daniel is called, it's a party, let's face it. It This isn't a brunch, right? This isn't a breakfast party. This isn't lunchtime. This isn't a power lunch they're having. This is in late in the evening. Daniel's probably pulled out from his slumber, brought into the palace, brought into a situation where he's now gonna speak in front of the king and a thousand of the king's highest officials. And what he has to do is the unthinkable. Pronounce judgment on the king and say, King, you're going to lose everything, including your life. Can we just say that that takes courage? Can we just say that that takes guts? Can we take maybe even better and say that that takes a whole lot of faith? And it begs the question this morning, when opportunities come for us to share... 
the good news and yes, at times the bad news of the gospel, will we declare it? Will we declare it when we're by ourselves with just one other person? Will we declare it when we're all by ourselves amidst a whole majority of other people? Will we declare it when it's someone underneath us or someone above us? Will we declare it if it means the loss of our lives? When we are asked, will we speak up and what will we proclaim about our God? And finally, and probably most important, is this final question, and that is, what is God writing on your wall? What's God writing on your wall? You see, each of us have walls like that which is behind me, and God's speaking. Those walls are in our hearts. The Bible says God has written on our hearts. And what's he writing to you? What's he saying to you? Are they words of conviction? A calling to cease and desist in one way and turn to him? Maybe he's writing on some of your walls words of compassion, words of love. But have you ever thought to look at the wall of your life and ask, what's God writing on it? Last night we had an incredible event for the men. Um, games and activities and all that. And we had um, two speakers, Dave Beebe and Jared Williamson, share about their life and, and all that. And Jared shared his testimony. And Jared, if you know, Jared um, some time ago experienced a life-threatening car accident. It should have taken his life. An event that happened because of the sovereignty of God and Yes, even the hard things like a driver under the influence of alcohol. And he would spend countless days in the hospital and have, I think he said, six or seven major surgeries to put his body back together still with one surgery to go. And he told our men that he uniquely remembered God speaking to him in, in his place of trial and turmoil. And he said, this trial is here, Jared, because I think you're sitting on the sidelines. I think you're building your own kingdom. And Jared said, and with rapt attention of every man there, Jared said, I heard God, and my life will never be the same again. You see, God wrote on Jared's wall so much that Jared would say, and Jared isn't able to run like he used to, he's barely able to walk without the use of crutches. Months, months later, still having surgeries, and he would say this, I count it all joy because God wrote on my wall. And God got my attention before it's too late. And God gave me a second chance. Belshazzar didn't take the opportunity. He never pays homage to God, and he loses his life. And while you still have life and breath in you, what is God writing on your wall? It's the most significant question you could ask today. Not who's going to win the Super Bowl, but what is God saying to you today? And will you listen to him? Listen to me, church, before it's too late. Will you change and do what he says before your life is taken? You and I don't know what a day might bring, Jesus says. So we should make the most of our opportunities. And I pray that we will.